Our family has become a government in exile. Visiting you is like paying my respects to a kindly, downhearted minister who is equally fearful of past, present and future. Two small rooms to eat and sleep in. Only the essentials escaped being boxed up while awaiting their destination. Still they wait. This is home for now, a little town. Outside Florence where the streets are lifeless and the old stick their necks out of windows like turtles keeping an eye out for vultures. When apart, we speak only a little, a pair of talking heads in a penumbra. I look at you, a housewife without a house, without a husband too. Pondering it all, I chew antacids with a sovereign indifference. Your younger son, your adjutant or aide-de-camp, shuts himself in his room all day and shoots aliens, Nazis or terrorists on his console, almost as if training for a war to reconquer our lives. Hello, and welcome to Words That Burn, a podcast about poetry. Each week, I read a poem, look at its inner workings, and hopefully show you what makes it tick. This week's poem is Sinso by Andre Nafis Sahele. Before I begin, I have a suggestion. Try to find a copy of the poem somewhere so that you can read along. Born in Venice and raised in Abu Dhabi, Andre Nafis Sahili was very much of two worlds for most of his life. While some would expect this might lead to a kind of blended poetry of two worlds, ancient Europe meets ancient Arabic, this dual nationality has had the exact opposite effect on his work. His first collection, The Promised Land, Poems from an Itinerant Life, should provide the hint to the reader as to the tone of his work. The notion of itinerancy conjures up feelings of displacement and a lack of belonging. This is precisely the tone that dominates the pages of the book. It comes from the first section of three in the collection, the one that deals almost exclusively with his early days in Abu Dhabi and the subsequent fallout for his family after their harrowing time there. Nafis Saheli always looks under the glamour of Abu Dhabi and aims to show the torment and abuse that helped to build it. He is particularly interested in the emotional cost all this had on what he referred to as the disposable citizens it contained. In his own words, It is a sad truth that the Emirati dream, the construction of a fully functional nation-state in less than three decades, a miracle of modern engineering, which provides a modicum of economic empowerment and stability in a region devastated by Western wars, has been built entirely on the backs of millions of guest workers who are thrown out the minute they're no longer useful, usually against their wishes. This poem investigates the aftermath of such a throwing out, unfortunately one that seems to have happened to his own parents. Zinsukt is dedicated to my mother and forms one part of a loose duo, the other being addressed to my father. It details a visit to his Italian mother, who seems to have retreated to her home country in the wake of their eviction. From the very title, Sinsucht, we understand the kind of poem we are in for. It is a German word used to invoke yearning or deep desire, often referring to the facets of life that are unfinished or imperfect. Soon we will realize that this is a poem that exclusively deals with the imperfections and unfinished aspects of life in general. The opening stanza shows the reader the dire circumstances that the poet's mother finds herself in. 
Our family has become a government in exile. Visiting you is like paying my respects to a kindly, downhearted minister who is equally fearful of past, present, and future. There is a coldness to the language used by Nafis Saheli as he transforms his family from a homely unit to a state in disgrace. Government in exile makes it clear that his mother's stay in this place is less than voluntary, whilst the lines like paying my respects make it clear that this visit is not filled with love and compassion, but almost motivated by a kind of duty or sense of obligation. It is clearer still that his mother is suffering. She is the downhearted minister who seems to fear every moment of her life. The event that brought her to this place has left its mark. The next stanza may as well describe a prison cell of sorts. Two small rooms to eat and sleep in. Only the essentials escaped being boxed up while awaiting their destination. Still they wait. This is home for now. A little town. What is described is a place that has not been accepted as home. After all, only the essentials escaped being boxed up. But perhaps that is not the correct way to look at it. His mother keeps her belongings boxed up in defiance of circumstance. It is clear that her life is now full of disappointment. Despite this, she keeps some hope that they will soon move on, back to Abu Dhabi, where her home and her husband is waiting, yet still they wait. An almost purgatory-style torment is established in the lines, an eternal uncertainty that hangs about the place. She is even denied the comfort of a home, as this place is just a home for now. If the house is purgatory, then the next stanza evolves its surroundings to an even more grim kind of limbo. Outside Florence, where the streets are lifeless and the old stick their necks out of windows like turtles keeping an eye out for vultures, when apart we speak only a little. This little town outside Florence is not even granted the dignity of a name. It is an unremarkable place, housing unremarkable people, and seems to further the indignity of the poet's family's exile. To my mind, the mention of Florence is intended to evoke its most famous poet, Dante Alighieri, who himself wrote the famous work Il Purgatorio, a nice way to deepen the reader's understanding of what is happening here. There is no life in this place, and its denizens are even more deserving of pity than the characters we've met before. They seem to mirror the mother's sense of fear as they stick their necks out of windows. They too live in terror of what might be and what could come to pass. The vultures and turtles being a classic omen of ill fortune and doom. It is clear that this rift of family is deepening. The cold, stately behavior of the previous stanza is revealed to be the tip of the iceberg and now the poet and his mother speak only a little. Perhaps they are unsure of what to say to each other, or perhaps to speak of this situation would only acknowledge it, therefore making it all the more real. The next stanza widens the chasm between the pair. A pair of talking heads in a penumbra. I look at you, a housewife without a house, without a husband too. Pondering it all, I chew antiacids with a sovereign indifference. The reference to talking heads is reinforcing the idea of cold, professional language between the pair, conjuring notions of interviews and official statements. 
a far cry from how a mother and son relationship should be. A penumbra is an area of shadow that is not completely dark, with glimmers of light showing through. He looks at her through one. Suddenly, his mother is transformed into a Caravaggio-like figure, one of tragedy and shadow. Caravaggio's work famously depicted women in scenes of violence and desperation. Not always, but often. As such, it is a fitting analogy for his laid-low mother in her current state. She has been stripped of the many roles that gave her a sense of identity. A housewife without a house. Without a husband, too. She has very nearly lost everything. The final line of the stanza shows that not even the poet is above the strains and wounds of this hardship. He maintains a semblance of his cold demeanor, his sovereign indifference, yet all the while chewing on antacids. A sure sign of stress and upset, letting the reader know that his cold exterior does not mirror his interior. The final stanzas bring this sense of alienation and loss to a crescendo. Your younger son, your adjutant or aide-de-camp, shuts himself in his room all day and shoots aliens, Nazis or terrorists on his console, almost as if training for a war to reconquer our lives. The poet finally mentions his brother, who has been absent from the rest of the poem. Perhaps a nod to the fact that this figure is even further closed off from the rest of the family. The brother has almost embraced the alienation and solitude that this small town brings. There is a tone of bitterness to the words, your adjutant or aide de camp, both military ranks that refer to someone who assists the commanding officer. This is a possible hint to the notion of the younger brother as his mother's favourite, her constant companion. It is certainly not a reference to his actions that make him second-in-command, as, previously stated, he hides away in his room. To while away his time in purgatory, the poet's brother shoots aliens, Nazis or terrorists on his console, to vent frustration and anger at his situation. The final line, in every sense, is an admission of defeat for his family by the poet. The word reconquer is there, and it suggests that the family has lost everything, has been conquered, not only by circumstance, but by life in general. In the absence of any real-life action being possible, the family is left training for a war that might return them to their position. The final mention of war, showing just how difficult it will be for them to get back to where they once were. I think Andre Nafis Saheli's work has a very strong, almost cinematic feel to it. It's difficult not to be swept up in the narrative he weaves. When I read this poem, the quiet desperation he writes of seems almost palpable. The dusty streets of some long-forgotten Italian village may as well be under my feet. Indeed, this is but one poem of a very strong debut collection. The Promised Land is filled with cinematic moments, chronicling not only the difficulties of the poet's family, but the suffering all immigrants, lured to places by the promise of wealth and fortune, must endure. It is, to my mind, a collection very much for the 21st century, filled with sacrifice, hard labour and hollow economic promises of a paradise that will never come to pass. It is one that I would strongly recommend you read. 
So, do you agree with my reading? Do you have your own? I will point out, as always, that this is very much my interpretation, and as such, very much up for debate. If you'd like to talk to me about it, or if you have a poem you'd like me to read on this podcast, or perhaps you have a reading you'd like me to include in one of my episodes, you can get in touch with me in the following ways. Send me an email at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at wordsthatburnpodcast, where I upload helpful study guides and bonus material. You can find the show notes for this episode complete with references at wordsthatburnpodcast.com. This episode was written and produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. The music for this week's episode was provided by Sergei Cheremizinov and is used under Creative Commons license. As always, I really appreciate you spending time with me, and hopefully, you'll hear from me again soon.